It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day and welcome to another episode of Hard Hats and High Vs. This is our 17th episode, trawling through the pre-election coverage and now on the other side... Uh, and joining me today is Jack from Hong Kong. Hong Kong, Jack, how are you, mate? Good day, Jack. Very good to have you with me again. Uh, I just want to remind our listeners that if you like what you're listening to, give us a four or even five-star review on your podcast app. We can take that kind of flattery. Uh, and also, uh, more importantly, if you do have some comments about the show to make, if you want uh, questions answered or some horrible criticism to uh, make public on this program we would love to hear from you so drop us a line at the conditional release program at gmail.com or indeed you can hit me up on dm uh on at jack the insider on twitter let's kick it off jack news poll shows uh, elbow we have a new god in this country his name is anthony albanese and he has a 61 percent approval rating it's not bad three months ago people didn't know who he was <laughs> yes he is benefiting from a real sugar hit to beginning but to be fair they've started pretty well started pretty well 61 percent approval rating labor up three points coalition down three others greens uh, and when i say others indies etc uh have not budged greens has haven't budged and fon is up one uh, but I'll it, put it just down. it just seems to me that uh, the voters were perhaps a little unsure. They were pretty sure that the, the, that the last government had been in there too long and gotten a bit tired. So they were yeah. keen enough to get rid of those. They weren't too sure about how Labor was going to go and about who Anthony Albanese was and how he would go as Prime Minister. But he's got off to a good start. So this is a, a tick of approval, if you like. Indeed. I think there's some brand recognition there too, yeah. mate, uh, that perhaps wasn't there pre-election. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I suppose, I mean, you could put you and me up against Scott Morrison. We'd go, we'd go, okay, wouldn't we? Uh, well, you put it, put anybody up against him except Bill Shorten. <laughs> yes, that's true. I guess there's only curiosity value in a poll at this particular stage of the election cycle. Uh, we have uh, gone past uh, gone past twelve o'clock there, well and truly. But it does tell me the coalition needs to be very, very careful how it handles itself in opposition. Um, as I said, drop three points, um, and uh, that takes their their um, if it were to be realised an election their their primary vote into the very low thirties, uh, and uh, and they can't win certainly can't win from there. I think the trick for them is not to appear like they're just having a short spell in opposition after being the natural party of government. What do you think, Jack? Well, I think there's something very odd about commentators wanting the coalition to engage in a, a serious public review, almost like a struggle session. Um, uh, it sort of, it, it seems like it's sort of a, tr- a, a true session, with- Jack. When they all yeah. sit sit in the room and just tell each other what they think of each other. This That'd is the culture. culture. I'd, I'd pay good money to stream that, Jack. 
there's, there's, this is a cultural revolution stuff, you know. Uh, it, sort of, it sort of looks like it's a, um, from some of the commentators, at least, it's a punishment for apostasy, for um, uh, ignoring the uh, orthodoxy of the media. Um, so it, 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 I, I, I don't see I don't see any upside for that for the, for the opposition. No, not, oh, I don't either. Other than it yeah. would be hugely entertaining. Um, well, look, it, it would be great fun. Uh, it would be watching it, you know. <laughs> but uh, but uh, but but for the opposition's point of view, uh, no, they shouldn't be doing that. I mean, they've got some problems. Their party machinery is a bit of a mess. But then mm. that's true of Labor as well. Labor is a uh, federal Labor is about to intervene in the, the Tasmanian branch. The Victorian branch is a mess, even while the government in Victoria is going okay. So both parties have got some serious things to do to yeah. fix up their party machinery. But that's the sort of stuff that should be done as much as possible behind closed doors. As for the opposition in Canberra, their job to do at the moment, I think, is to get the team right, um, get the process right, uh, and just grind away and ignore all the short-term polls and just concentrate on being as good as they can be as an opposition. As an opposition. That's what I mean. Yeah. I think that, 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 that really needs some sort of separate form of definition because if they go around saying, look, we're just have, having three years off and then we're back as the natural party of government in this country, I think they will get walloped if they go down that well, track. It, it, does, it doesn't tend to work like that unless the government really makes a mess. It's very hard to win it back after one term. Uh, unless they, uh, the, unless the government makes a dog's breakfast of the thing. Yes, indeed. No, look, well said. So, okay, over uh, the... as, as we've been saying all along, the chance of the person appointed leader of the opposition after an election defeat ever getting through to government uh, as prime minister is almost zero. Statistically, I don't think yeah. it's been done in modern Australian politics. So, no. uh, so you know, there is that sense that he is. Uh, he is uh, sitting in the uh, sit, <laughs> sitting in the coach's box, uh, waiting for a Clarkson type figure to emerge. Jack. Yeah, he's he's got a job to do, but that job may not carry him. Probably won't carry him right back to the prime ministership. But he's still got an important job to do, and he should get on and do it. All right, uh, and very sad news over the weekend. Uh, Archibald William Roach, Archie Roach. Uh, uh, passed away after a long illness at the age of 66. Uh, uh, and Paul Kelly, uh, and this has made headlines around the country, the, the great Australian songwriter and collaborator with Archie Roach, uh, uh, made the comment, Archie Roach, big tree down, weeping in the forest, in tribute to his beloved friend. Um, <coughs> uh, Archie Roach died at Warrnambool Base Hospital uh, over the weekend. Um, uh, I would just ask all of our listeners, if you haven't done this, uh, have a look uh, live or studio recording on YouTube of Took the Children Away, and it is a magnificent song, uh, hard to listen to that uh, and jump up and down. It is one of those songs that you need to listen to every word of. Uh, so uh, have a listen to Took the Children Away, probably his most famous song. He was a member of the Stolen Generation, Jack, and this led to a bit of a snafu at The Guardian over the weekend where they described him in, um, in an obituary as a member of the so-called Stolen Generations. Did you see mm. that? I did see that, yes. Now... For those who don't know, what happens with obituaries is they are written well in advance. I'm not sure 
uh, how many years ago Archie Roach's uh, Guardian obituary was written. Um, but that phrase should have been picked up straight away. As it stood, it, it uh, was uh, a subject of great criticism on social media. Uh, the Guardian was at least uh, for using that term, so-called stolen generations. And um, uh, it, I believe it was changed um, earlier earlier today. We're recording on them on Monday the 1st of August, but it was let go for a weekend. Uh, an Indigenous businessman, SBS board member, Warren Mundine, was I, said using the phrase so-called stolen generations was a big insult, particularly to Roach, a man who was loved by all Australians. That's fair, that's fair comment, isn't it, Jack? Yeah, it's pretty fair comment, yeah. Yeah, it's just, just a nasty thing. See, what, what, what happens in newspapers, uh, even if they're just online, is they've got these files stashed away in the cupboard awaiting people's deaths. Uh, and they used to, But they used to have more people employed at these newspapers, which made keeping the obit files up to date a little bit easier yeah. because you always yeah. had someone whose they beat always was always need to be updated. Yeah, um, always had someone whose beat um, that they were meant to be covering was a bit quiet, so they could be sent to work down in the obits. Go and, go and update four obits for me this afternoon. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, I wrote an original uh, obit for Bill Waterhouse, mate, and I wrote that 10 years before he died. So there's actually quite a long period between the writing and the actual yeah. death where that yeah. needs to be updated as you go. And had that been uh, passed under the nose of an editor, even a sub-editor, they would have gone, oh, Let's get rid of that. I, I don't know what the context of you know, so-called generation was in the in the yeah no nor do I the, um, the the obit the obit section of the of the of the British newspapers used to be some of the best reading you could ever do um, uh, in the telly and the it's uh, a particular uh, skill the, yeah and, 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 and a an obituarist is a particular skill. A very fine uh, one uh, at it was uh, my mate and uh, former colleague Graham Leach, who's no longer at the Australian. Uh, he was the letters editor and the obituarist. Um, but often he would be uh, palming out obituaries uh, in preparation for people passing away. It's a rather grim business, Jack. It's, it's like actually, it's worse than going through the obituaries itself and looking, looking for, 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 for people who died to, just to see if you knew them. Um, it's actually planning and preparing for a death because you can't, I mean, can you think about it from a television point of view? You've actually got to put a reel together uh, of the highlights of that particular person's mm. life, uh, and they can't just do that, bang, you know, because if someone passes away suddenly, four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, you can't just cobble together something that's going to be worthwhile in the space of an hour or two. Yeah, there was a time back in the uh, uh, early 2000s I used to read, love reading the Daily Telegraph from London, their obituaries, because they had some wonderful codes. This, this was a time when a lot of these elderly English gentlemen were dying and, and it was known that they were gay, but they had never made that public. So there was a real code that developed around this yes, in the obituaries. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the, the you know, Colonel, Colonel so-and-so uh, died after a long illness. Um, uh, he was widely loved, left a wide circle of friends, devoted to his mother, um, but left a wide circle of friends in a cocker spaniel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, look, Archie Roach, though, uh, a great uh, presence uh, in, in the Indigenous community, loved by all Australians, as Warren Mundine says. And again, if you're not aware of his music, start with a YouTube clip, clip of Took the Children Away, a magnificent songwriter uh, and a great loss to, to Australia generally. And that leads us, Jack, to the Indigenous voice. Uh, and I, I'm starting to get the feeling that we need need to do a lot more work on this to let people know uh, what's actually planned, what's planned in the Uluru Statement from the heart, the process that's involved necessarily includes a referendum uh, and, and, uh, and just how our politicians are going to communicate why it's necessary to the, to the, to the population. Yeah, um uh, the history of referenda in Australia is that they generally don't pass. I think there's eight out of 44 have ever yeah. passed. Um, perhaps the one that m might resemble this is the 1967 referendum yes. where I think the... Um, uh, what did they get? They got 90% uh, of the population in all six states um, uh, agreed, to the, uh, agreed to the question. Um, yes. But that's an that's a, a, an absolute outlier. This doesn't normally it doesn't normally happen. And the difference with the 1967 referendum was that it, it was a long time in preparation, um, and the public debate had been run and won before the referendum was actually put. Um, and I think there needs to be some care taken with uh, with any further referendums on on this sort of issue. That that that, that situation is more or less repeated. You can't rush this. Well, yes, you can't rush this. You really do need to get across what's going on. I'll start with the proposed question. Elbow was at the Gama Festival in Arnhem, Arnhem Land last week, and and he proposed this question. It's not the question that's going to be put. Uh, that will have to go through the Parliament. But one proposed question from Elbow was, do you support an alteration to the Constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? Um, that's, well, uh, it's, it's going to have to be much more specific than that to, to mm. pass as a referendum. To pass as a referendum and, and essentially requires constitutional change. So yes. when, we, when we get to the... Before we get to the three stages of... of uh, the Uluru Statement. I just want to take you to uh, uh, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Linda Burney, um, uh, known properly as the Indigenous Australians Minister. Uh, <coughs> she says there will be extensive consultation with Indigenous leaders and engagement with the wider Australian community as the Labor government seeks to enshrine a voice to Parliament in the Constitution. Um, and that seems to me a very, uh, a very good, a very good process. Um, uh, <clears throat> but um, uh, let's just quickly go through the three stages. We're not going to go through them quickly. We actually want to give them some length. So the Uluru Statement of the Heart was essentially um, was essentially uh, a an expression from uh, Indigenous leaders around the country. Uh, of how we might go through a, a proper process of formal reconciliation. And it involves a th sort of three-step process. Part of that is constitutional recognition, 
which requires a successful referendum. Uh, the second part is the establishment of an extra parliamentary body, and I don't mean taking on another House of Parliament, but a body that sits outside the two chambers that can um, uh, consider and make recommendations on legislation that affects Indigenous Australians. And the final stage of the process, sometimes confused with a treaty, although it's not that, Miracata is a genuine reconciliation process, a sitting down and truth-telling uh, and a recognition of mistakes of the past, uh, followed by, you know, um, an embrace uh, across the divide where we, where we put those things behind us and decide to move on. First stage, constitutional recognition. Without it, everything sort of falls down. And that means we need, firstly, Jack, we must have uh, bipartisan support in the federal parliament. But that's not enough. No, but it's, it's where we start. It's where we start. We can't have a question being proposed in the parliament that is rejected by the opposition and the crossbenchers. No, I don't think it's where you start at all. I think this is this has got to be. This needs community support before it even gets to putting the question in. Parliament. Okay. So that that puts it all on. Well, not all, but but that but that, that gives uh, Linda Burney a significant role uh, in in going to indigenous communities, uh, in going to. Uh, uh, Second Australian communities, um, and, and 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 explaining why this is necessary and why it's necessary now. Yeah, that's right. It really requires the hard slog of convincing people that what's proposed is a good idea. The time frame the government's given themselves is to ha is to establish a date for a referendum by the end of the year. Is that enough time? No, I don't think so. I don't think it is. So, so in the end, while it's a very very important. Uh, process for the for the nation to go through. That doesn't mean that it's that it's time critical. That that really means that you have to do the hard yards over a period of time. Perhaps we could we could uh, extend that to uh, Labor's second year in government. Uh, a process of at least eighteen months of discussion of discussion within the community uh, about about uh, about. Uh, uh, this process, but also about the uh, about the the question that is going to be put to Australia. My gut feel is, if if they push this through quickly, it will fail. Yeah, oh, look, I've no doubt about that, and I, and I, I, and I don't there's, know. There's nothing there's... scientific about that. That's yeah. just my gut feel. Is that, is that if they don't do the hard work right. of convincing the community it's a good plan, then it will fail. So referendum in, in this country, just so people know, it must it must have a majority, uh, a majority of voters overall, and it must have a majority of states, Jack. Yeah. So if you lose one or two, you're gone. Well, if you lose if you lose two states, never mind that uh, Victoria and, and New South Wales, for example, might uh, might have overwhelming majorities in favour of the referendum if it if they fail in other states. Two other states. That's the end of it. Yep. So that's why it's important to engage all of Australia and take your time with with it. 
Um, uh, we have seen some opposition. I think it would be being... terribly disappointing if they if they push this through and make a mess of it. It's something yeah. you've, it's, you've got to be patient with and get right, in my, in my view. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is absolutely critically important that we get this process uh, underway and 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 achieve basically the three aims. It's the it's the Aboriginal people who have actually reached out and said this is the way we need. To, this is the way forward for for uh, uh, for, for reconciliation with uh, with First Australians. They've given us the roadmap, and and basically the government needs to lead the conversation on why it's absolutely critical for this nation's identity. You know, it's its own consciousness. Um, there has been some opposition uh, expressed in the in the in the uh, parliament, uh, in the federal parliament, um, that 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 seems to rely on the argument that we shouldn't be going through what might be considered symbolic a reconciliation when practical reconciliation uh, is being uh, is not being proceeded with. What are your thoughts on that, Jack? I mean, why can't we do both? Um, well, there's no reason why you can't do both. Um, the, the, the problems with uh, the condition of in, the Indigenous Australians living uh, at the moment, particularly in remote Australia, are, are, are proving to be very, very difficult to resolve. Um, there's been no shortage of good intentions and lots of money spent without much effect um, and that, that all needs a bit of a rethink um, um, you know with a sort of a blank sheet approach you know well this is what we've tried um, most of it hasn't worked what what can we do better um, but that's a separate question really um look one stat i mean people will be well and truly aware of the stats um, and the, and these are indeed measurable and reportable to the parliament St mm. statistics like um, <coughs> life expectancy and so forth and the, and the differences there but one statistic that came up to me when i was having a look uh, on this issue during the week is that first australians are five times more likely to be victims of murder than the general population uh, and uh, it must be said, too, that First Australians are five times more likely to be an offender in relation to murder as well. So we've got some... those. That sort of one-off statistic gives you an idea of the sort of issues that need to be addressed. They are overwhelmingly wrapped in poverty as well. If, if what was happening in the remote Indigenous communities was happening in... Newtown or Fitzroy or whatever, there would be a national outcry. It's really a really very bad situation. Mm. Um, and um, there is a long line of people with the very best intentions and a lot of money has been spent trying to fix this and nothing much they've tried so far has made much difference. Yes, I mean, look, there have been, have been some um, uh, narrowing narrowing in those sort of awful statistics around um, around life expectancy, around health, around education and so forth. Slight narrowing, but long, long way to go. Um, my, my issue is offering practical reconciliation as a, as a defense for not pursuing, not pursuing um, uh, <laughs> the Uluru statement as an expression of reconciliation is you, we can do both. We can walk and chew gum. Uh, but we shouldn't. Time. But we shouldn't pretend that uh, any statement, any Uluru statement, is going to fix the problems 
in remote, particularly in remote Aboriginal communities, um, uh, either. I, 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 it, it's not a general panacea. It's not designed no. that way, but it, it, it will have benefits. It will have practical benefits. But yes, you do need to address these issues, particularly in those communities, remote communities, where there is essentially no economy. That's the that's the big if, problem. If if in selling the benefits of the Uluru Statement, you go out and tell people that if we do this, this is going to fix the problems in remote Aboriginal communities, then the referendum I'm, su- I'm absolutely certain will fail because no one's going to believe that. Yeah, I only say that because basically you do have, these symbolic things do have beneficial impacts, but on their own, yeah we are just really brushing away at what is a very significant problem. To our letters section, Jack, uh, we have a letter which we actually address part of. um, This is a a letter from Chris we actually address part of in our Around the World program last Friday. But uh, uh, listener Chris, who's a farmer uh, somewhere or other in Australia, had a couple of comments. He was listening to us while he was on the boom spray. Uh, and uh, and he came up, uh, he firstly said, uh, on Nick Curious, Curios, I think the reason he hasn't got the support of some of the Oz public is because of the times he gives up. Has tanked a few times, has tanked a few games here and there. There is no doubt he's a prodigious talent, but he's a sook. If something goes against him, says Chris, he's just as likely to throw in the towel as stay in the fight. The current star, Novak Djokovic, was notorious for this early in his career as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess. So that's that's just a question of does he grow up and um, uh, and stop doing that? Well, the, there must be so many games in so many matches on the circuit that just don't matter, you know. Mm-hmm. It just don't matter. So you're going to take one. It's not a good look, but it is going to happen. He, he doesn't have much subtlety in his tanking is part of the problem. Uh, yeah, no, I, I do, do recall one game. I think it was in the United States. So it was fairly fairly obvious game. Um uh, and look, Chris goes on to say, and while listening to Jack the Insider's general diatribe about ABC News 24, I think he said something along the lines of opinion isn't news and the two should never go together, which left me to ponder if he's ever got past the first couple of pages of The Australian. Oh, gee whiz. Ouch. How rude. <laughs> yes, the ABC is far from perfect, he goes on to say, and I often rant at their misrepresentation of ag issues on the agricultural issues. On the odd occasion, I, I watch free-to-air TV. I prefer it to the endless reality shows on commercial channels. Also, it's regional and local uh, radio network, even with its bias especially Triple J, is an essential part of rural life. Couldn't actually disagree with that in terms no, of... No, I grew up in regional, rural Australia. Regional, local grew radio. up in rural Australia and the ABC was just part of the fabric of life and it, I think it probably still is. Uh, oh, yeah, very much still is. And we saw that, you know, um, uh, with the bushfires, for example, where the ABC basically led... Uh, ABC local radio basically led the way in terms of getting information out to people who are in terrible terrible straits and, and, and often in doubt as to as to what to do and where to go. Um, <coughs> it is a uh, bit tricky it is a bit tricky on radio with the, the separation of um, radio and television with the separation of reporting and commentary you know it's pretty easy on the internet because if you want to read the opinion pieces you click on the word that says opinion or commentary yeah. um, if you want to read the news that. section you click on the bit that says news yeah. um, but that, that 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 necessarily gets jumbled together quite a bit more on on radio and television. 
Yeah, look, it can be, and and that's right. So, I mean, basically, if you've got the big word on the on the web page or in the newspaper, starting with O, you'll know you've 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 moved into the op-ed section. Um, the two should be uh, de- delineated, and I do believe the Australian does that exceptionally well, and we've got some exceptionally good reporters uh, providing news uh, as opposed to opinion. I think perhaps what I was saying with uh, ABC News 24 is that it falls into these sort of panel shows like the drum and so forth and then interviews uh, interviews with politicians where we're getting basically expressions of opinions. Nothing really wrong with that except to say it isn't news. My big problem with ABC News 24 uh, for Lawrence's ears and others is that is a huge money suck uh, and... And necessarily, you know, well, has led to cuts in other ABC, um, 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 other ABC media across into uh, local drama production and comedy production and uh, other news and and, and current affairs uh, have been stripped back in in order to sort of bow to this great 24-hour um, um, uh, channel, um, which is really sort of about 18 because six of those are, provided by Al Jazeera and BBC. I don't know that it was ever necessary with ABC's, um, uh, I think, three other channels to provide a dedicated news program and suck all that money into news uh, when they've got a lot of other things to get through. Especially when you're claiming you're short of money. Uh, One thing that Chris did touch on, which I think is interesting, uh, he talks about, he's a farmer, and he talks about, uh, their misrepresentation of agricultural issues. And this is a problem that uh, all news all services face is that their listeners say, listen to them and, say, and think, well, that sounds okay, except all of a sudden they're talking about an issue that the, the listener knows a lot about. And then you realise that a lot of the stuff there, they've just gotten wrong, um, you know. Yeah, uh, indeed, not enough focus for it. I mean, I know, I know a lot of city people and watch it myself. Um, uh, uh, the, the ABC do it where others really don't. So, I mean, we can give them a tick for, for, for some of their uh, for some of their rural programming. It is part of their um, uh, it is part of their ballywick to to actually provide those things. So, you know, unlike other commercial media, the ABC has to tick a number of boxes. It needs to be an expression of the artistic community. It needs to find uh, um, uh, expressions uh, for for rural and regional Australia. So it's a difficult thing, and that's why I come back to this idea of having a 24-hour news television channel is unnecessary. Um, yeah, well, well, I agree. Anyway, Chris. Right. Uh, anyway, Chris. Great letter. Thanks for thanks for. No, that was late. yeah. No, yeah, that was uh, uh, just one thing. That was Lawrence, you, by the way. Just, sorry, that sorry, sorry Lawrence. Do you mm. like Landline? Um, quite a few of my expat pals in Hong Kong love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, quite, I, think it's, I think it's the best current affairs they do on the ABC, to be quite honest. Yeah, no, it's a very good show. I, I, I like it a lot. I think some of their science programming leaves a little bit to be desired at times, but um, but uh, Landline is a terrific program and uh, occasionally flick to it on the Sunday. Uh, uh, this... Uh, that was a letter from Lawrence, and thank you very much for that, Lawrence. We hope we've answered your comments as best we can. Uh, we have another letter from Chris uh, called Dear One Who Shall Not Be Named, and that's me in regard to uh, my Russian sanctioning and Hong Kong Jack. 
Uh, I won't read it all. It's a long letter and very, very kindly written. But it, uh, it says, uh, I've been enjoying your past few podcasts, except the apparent disdain for 1K Rudd. Oh, I'll put my used, hand up for that. <laughs> used to be my local member. Yes, you've been very, very rude about all about Kevin Rudd and, and, uh, and his uh, current fixations, um, <laughs> which seem to be just identifying news. I mean, I think he's, he's one who's probably uh, slipped off the map a little bit uh, because Labor, you know, ironically, because Labor has been elected, you know. Um, um, but, he, but, uh, but, but Chris goes on to say, he used to be my local member many years ago, and unlike most modern politicians, he seemed to have read his job title, the member for, oh, what was it, Jack? He doesn't, he hasn't oh, I can't remember. Yeah. Griffith, 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 member for Griffith. In a House of Representatives, when he wasn't in Canberra, you would find him on a Saturday or Sunday, set up outside the local cinema in Balimba with a sign that said, I'm Kevin, your local member, come and have a chat which is a good thing, even when the local ne'er-do-wells, who I may or may not have known, would drive past yelling, Rudd's a dud, Rudd's a dud. He'd just wave and say, hi, boys. He and his office were always exceptionally helpful when I contacted contacted them uh, on local and national issues or just advice on dealing with federal departments. That's exactly what a good local member is supposed to do, supposed to do Jack. Tony Abbott was uh, famous for his little card table out at the Forestville Shopping Centre uh, near my um, our parents-in-law. He was there. Yeah. And, and Malcolm Turnbull used to do a little bit of it in Oxford Street even, mm. um, uh, in, uh, in Paddo. Um, uh, I don't think that people know, en- know, know enough that your local member can be of great benefit to you, particularly in, in, in finding your way through the sort of morass of bureaucracy. Um, uh, they could be of great benefit for you for in immigration matters. They might be a great benefit for you in in terms of uh, uh, obtaining visas from for, to travel in other countries. I mean, they'll be a great Gov- source government of departments. Advice. Government departments do sit up and take a little bit of notice if a letter from the local member turns up. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Chris goes on. I wonder why Queensland Federal Police are the only ones who have ever sent me a welcome letter introducing themselves. Never happened in Sydney, he says, or Melbourne where he's lived, uh, but uh, it has happened in Queensland. Um, uh, He goes on to say, I read an article about how Rob Baillieu, son of former Victorian Premier Ted Baillieu, was working on Monique Ryan's campaign. Wouldn't the Liberal Party and supporters be better off diverting some resources including young liberals, into helping these conservative independents. This was not only keeping them on side, but also having some influence, especially if the balance of power is in their hands, uh, sort of like how Qantas created Jetstar as a budget competitor. On the other yes, side... There, there is a long, there's a long and proud history of political parties providing backroom support uh, and even a bit of frontroom support for um, yeah. uh, minor parties. Like sometimes, I, sometimes I even creating them, Jack. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> even no- knocking them up out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, uh, on the other side, he says it wouldn't be in the interest of wouldn't it be in the interest of Labor to keep the independents in Parliament, especially in the traditional Conservative seats? If so, why wouldn't the Labor government let them have some public wins? An example would be them saying they're sticking to our net zero emissions by 2050. The Greens would say, no, we want net zero by 2030. The independents could say, no, we think 2040. So he's referring to perhaps uh, Labor turning turning a little closer to the teal independents of the crossbenchers there rather than the Greens, Jack. Any sense in that? Mm, Not much. Yeah, look... (laughs) 
it's it's it, it has to be more than lip service though, doesn't it? They have to basically sit in with the teals and the greens and the crossbenchers more generally and and come to some accommodations. Let them have a win or two every now and then. Uh, well, they've got to sit there and talk to them. How much they they gives a matter for them, really, and it's a, it's a matter for a whole lot of factors to take into consideration. You've got to get the decisions right. I think what Chris is saying, and I think he makes the point quite well, is that we may well be looking at a, a, a long history uh, of minority governments. We certainly don't have one at the moment, um, but there, but uh, in the event uh, of, an, of, an, of, an, of the next election or the one after that, we are looking at uh, we are looking at bigger and bigger crossbenches as we go. That could, is, could, that, that could or could happen, and maybe it won't. Um, but certainly, from a Labor perspective, the, the, the teals have won seats that Labor are probably not going to ever win. Um, so having someone else apart from the coalition holding those seats is obviously a benefit to Labor. All right. Yeah, thanks, Jack. And and uh, thank you, Chris, for your letter. We do enjoy getting to uh, 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 listener letters and, and correspondence. And, and, and I'm, I'm just I'm just pleased, pleased that Kevin Rudd still retains one supporter in the Labor Party. <laughs> I'll be in the lab, but it's more general. He's a, he's a, oh, oh, Chris is, I pr- presume is of the left, uh, but a bit of a fan of Kevin Rudd. Oh, look, I know a lot of people who are uh, died in the World Labour votes who think he's terrific, um, and uh, I haven't uh, haven't gone to uh, uh, into fierce argument with them. But yeah, they, they they just see Kevin Rudd as being an extremely popular politician. Of course, he was, and when we think of Elbow at just a mere sixty one percent, Jack. Uh, Kevin Rudd, they, they said it was a record, um, but I don't think it is. I, 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 my memory of Kevin Rudd was high 60s approval rating after his election. Uh, measuring, a slightly, <laughs> measuring, a, measuring a slightly different thing, um, uh, this, this poll was. Right, okay, all right. So there, this, there was this, a, this, is, this is approval rating rather than... Um, uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the Kevin 67 uh, preferred, said Maybe was. it was preferred Prime Minister. It could have been preferred Prime Minister. There yeah. was a... Um, um, <clears throat> um, brilliant moment uh, there when uh, uh, I think it was the G20 got together and Barack Obama um, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> basically uh, 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 was introduced. No, sorry, Barack Obama got up and introduced the world's most popular politician. And Kevin Rudd puffed his chest out. And it wasn't <laughs> well, I have Kevin. that image of it. Perhaps he didn't, but I, I have that image of him puffing his chest out because he did have the the uh, the sixty point plus uh, appro- not approval rating a prime minister uh, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, prime ministerial role polling. And uh, but of course, uh, Barack was talking about Lula da Silva, the Brazilian president, who he at was. the time. Uh, had a uh, had an approval rating in the high seventies. Yeah, both approval ratings. Both the, Mr. De Silva and uh, Mr. Rudd were short lived. Uh, the curious thing about Kevin Rudd, of course, always was that he had a high approval rating um, outside of Parliament amongst people who didn't know him, and a very low approval rating within the Labor Party of people who did know him. Yeah, there's still a, there's still a few Labor people shudder when they hear his name. Mm. Um, uh, look, uh, one issue that has uh, been really annoying me for a long time. It's a New South Wales centric issue, 
and uh, and it's uh, and and many many thanks to Janet Fife Yeoman, it's a wonderful journalist at the Daily Telegraph who has been pushing this. What we've seen in the case of three convicted pedophiles, convicted in, in um, convicted of multiple offences with multiple victims, uh, convicted at trial, and then being given bail. Uh, we've got uh, there was there was one case of a of a fellow down in. Uh, down in the south coast of New South Wales, who'd been convicted while he was a president of a pony club, been convicted of abusing, abusing young girls, uh, and uh, uh, was uh, was bailed uh, with a number of provisions in the bail, including one that he not visit the pony club, but he actually did, and even while well, he breached those bail, uh, this is post conviction, by the way. We're not waiting for a we're not waiting for a process to determine guilt or innocence. It's already been determined. And these three pedophiles have been allowed to basically wander around the streets in, in the meantime. Uh, the, it's the New South Wales Attorney General has got very, very upset about this and, and, and basically uh, uh, through the DPP have, 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 have sought, to, um, sought to have these, these bail uh, laws overturned, not bail laws overturned, but these bail calls overturned um, but in one of those cases where the Supreme Court just went look we're not going to be told what to do by the government uh, rejected rejected the arguments of the council and, and basically these three pedophiles convicted of, of offences as I say not subject to determination of their guilt or innocence that's already been done they're still walking the streets and uh, and still awaiting sentencing Jack need to know your thoughts on this you're a law you're a lawyer yeah, um, it was sort of done a bit quickly, um, uh, it would be a concern, and the drafting doesn't seem to have been of the best. And, right. I, think, uh, and I think Garling's got a point um, uh, that uh, what the law seeks to do is very hard to achieve. It's very hard for him to be satisfied that it's actually impossible for someone to be given anything other than a full-time prison sentence. Uh, and that's what the law seeks to do. So if it's, if it's likely they're going to get a full-time prison, prison sentence, they shouldn't be out on bail. And that's not been the law, and, and I think it's going to be very hard to persuade the courts to change the law in the way that the Act seeks to do. Well, there was a discussion about what we call intensive corrections orders, which are non-custodial orders being placed on these people. And I do note that one of the convicts uh, basically presented the court with a whole raft of new heart problems. He had a few heart problems, Jack, uh, that were never mentioned at trial. And it was only after his conviction that he's turned up, uh, sought, uh, sought a referral to a, um, uh, uh, to a heart specialist, and um, only afterwards, I mean, you know, he'd probably have a crook heart after he'd been convicted of, of uh, something like this. He, you know, it's one of those things. Oh, they say they're depressed. Well, they'd be depressed. They'd be convicted. Hmm. Um, there's an old saying um, lawyers get taught very, very early on is hard cases make bad law. Uh, and sometimes when we seek to, uh, to remedy what we see as, a, as a, an injustice, we pass laws that... Um, that aren't good laws, and and I'm I'm not I'm not a favour of in favour of this kind of a change to the bail laws, even if um, as a community we're dissatisfied with some of the results of it. 
Well, yeah, I'm bound to be dissatisfied with the results, mate, because uh, in one case we had uh, one fellow on bail, term of his bail was that he not uh, not attend where he had committed, a, a pony club where he had committed uh, and lured children, uh, <clears throat> and then he turned up there. I mean, it's a clear... Well, I, th- I think that's a, diff- that's a different question. Yeah. Breaching bail conditions is different to not being able to get bail because it's likely that you're going to be given a full-time custodial sentence. Yeah. They're right. actually two separate questions, I think. Okay. All right. All right. Well, look, uh, for our listeners, uh, particularly in New South Wales, have a read of the Daily Telegraph. Have a look at Janet, Janet Fife Yeoman's reporting. has been excellent. Uh, she's a wonderful journalist, has been for many, many years. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, this is uh, kind of the Daily Telegraph's push at the moment, I must say. When I think you get convicted of an offence like this, regardless of your age, regardless of your state of infirmity, um, uh, you should be uh, you should be whacked off uh, to jail, uh, and uh, and I do know from some of the old cons that have been through there, Jack. They reckon that the health, uh, the public health system in in the slam is pretty good, better than outside. Some of them reckon. Yeah, um, uh, I think we were talking the other day about um, uh, Norm Gallagher's um, um, sentence, yeah, the BLF chap uh, back in the day, and. Um, I can remember sitting in the court while the submissions were made that he shouldn't be given a custodial sentence because he had a he had pre-diabetes and a health condition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and it's fair to say that um, Norm came out when he went in. Yes, that uh, <laughs> look, you've just got closer access to the public health service. That's why. Yeah, and uh, that's and, why it's and, better. And, and probably, probably a few less frothies and all that sort of stuff. But look, yeah, look, yeah. look it's. I mean, my natural inclination is, um, you know, I would have. I'm a bit rumpolian. You know, I would have made a terrible judge. I'm not. I'm not all that keen on backing people up in jail, uh, even if they've done the wrong thing. So I'm reluctant. I'm, I'm a sort of a pro bail, small sentence kind of lawyer. Oh, know. mate. I mean, well, look, this is where we are going to, well, where are we going to part company on this one too? Because uh, the three pedophiles in question, I would just say, yeah, look, how old are you? Seventy-eight. Yeah, we'll give you twenty years, yeah. um, and uh, we'll see you later. Look, you'll get terrific health health service while you're there, but you're not yeah. coming there. Well, you, you, um, you probably haven't sat across the table from as many clients as I have, so yeah, probably makes a difference. Yeah, it just seems to be a, no, a no-brainer for me, certainly in the anyway. case of uh, Duncan. But look, let's move on. James Packer, he's dropped a bit of weight and he's dropped a bit of dough. Uh, he's contributed uh, a reported two hundred fifty thousand dollars to Julian Assange's legal fighting. To, be, to fund. be fair, he probably found that behind the couch cushions. You know? and, uh, <laughs> it's in the. It was just in the ashtray. Uh, in yeah. the ashtray of his car, mate. Now looked yeah. in there, rumbled through some. Oh yeah, there's two hundred fifty large there. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it brings a wider question. I would like to talk about Assange as uh, you know a, a special topic for for one of our future episodes. What's your view about Assange? I mean, it looks very likely that he will go to the States. I can't see any other way around it. That he will go to the United States and face trial there for what are very, very serious offences and come with life sentences. Um, Does the punishment fit the crime? The crime in this case is releasing um, uh, classified material uh, and publishing it uh, through the WikiLeaks uh, website, and then later uh, through uh, through various uh, major mainstream media organisations. Well, I can see why at least part of the intelligence communities around the world 
like to see people punished for this because they want to discourage a repeat of this. And that's because publishing this sort of stuff very often puts at risk the people who, the, the, the intelligence community themselves, yes. members of that community themselves. That was the argument. Or, 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 or people who they have been recruiting to assist. So you put their lives at risk, you, you know. Um, so that's a, there's a good argument that you need to discourage this sort of activity. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, as I said, I'm not much of a one for banging people up for that. Um, it's been uh, locked up I, for a long time now, hasn't it? I well, mean, a lot of that he, was self-incarceration, self-detention. He's the author of his own misfortune to a very great extent, uh, is Julian Assange. Um, mm. uh, the, uh, he, he could have resolved the Swedish situation without spending all those years pestering the Ecuadorians. Was it the Ecuadorians? You know, um, yes, yeah, Ecuador, he was in the Ecuadorian uh, em, uh, embassy in London, yes. Yeah. Cupboard boy, I called him, and uh, yeah. cupboard boy, I called him, and a couple, and I think we we called him toilet boy after that because he basically snaffled the women's toilet at the Ecuadorian at the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, but look, for, for for mine, he's he's uh, he's he's paid, I think, a significant price already. Um, uh, in terms of incarceration, he, he continues to be banged up in maximum security. Again, as you say, author of his own demise, breach bail, and all that sort of stuff. But um, uh, for mine, he's sort of suffered enough. I'd, I'd really like to expand on this because I, this- did, I, I did enjoy the fact that um, a large number of conspicuous do-gooders stood bail for him um, um, uh, and uh, and lost their day. Oh, that was amazing. You know. Yeah, yeah. Look, look. There's also there's sort of two Assanges, Jack, and and. And, and the community, the WikiLeaks community, members of them left in their droves when it seemed like Assange had set him up, according to Mike Pompeo, as being a sort of uh, extra-national uh, uh, intelligence organisation. So, so he was actively involved in the business of spying and mm. picking sides as well. But, again, for mine, I think he served his time. We are going to revisit that uh, Jack, uh, we will go through that as a major topic because there is a long, long story behind Julian Assange and we want to try and cover all of it. But in the meantime, we did promise to talk about childcare policy in Australia. Now, Jack, you don't have young children you're about to have. You might be about to have... Well, you've got some grandchildren. You've already I got do. some I've grandchildren. I've got three of them. So you're obviously taking uh, an active interest in uh, their, uh, their uh, educational needs and care needs. Labor has, and we've talked about this in 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 the uh, program earlier. Labor has a a program which pays a percentage of uh, of the childcare subsidy up to people and include up to and including uh, a total family income of half a million dollars a year. If you're on half a million thirty, to be precise. Well, five thirty gets zero. Mm. Um, up to five thirty, that's right. So five twenty nine, nine nine nine. Mm. Uh, you'll get seven percent of your of your childcare subsidy uh, back. Um, uh, the figure I sort of look at is two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, you're getting more than half of your childcare subsidy back. Um, I just and and the current the current law cuts out at three hundred and fifty thousand. 
That's right. Uh, and um, it's going to be bumped up to 5.30. So I've, I've spoken to some Labor people about this, and, and, and because it seems astonishing to you and astonishing to me that people earning that uh, larger quid should be getting any government money at all. Um, but their argument is that this is a, a basically universal uh, un- this is a universal need in the community, and therefore, much like Medicare in a way, you will be rebated. Uh, you will be rebated regardless of your income. Well, they're not quite doing that, though, are they? No, it's not quite the same. But but you understand. Mm. They're, they're saying this is a universal need for this, and we are going to you know pay people a percentage back. I mean, for those who... I mean, we, we went through this years ago, of course, with, with my two girls, but uh, the, the fees that you were paying uh, are not unlike, you know, the major private school fees that, that you'd pay if, you, if your child was there five days a week, uh, not unlike, you know, your sort of Cranbrooks and your Melbourne grammars. Yeah, you'd have been thinking living in Double Bay, if only they were tall enough to fit into an Asham uniform, you could have sent them <laughs> off there. It would have been cheaper than childcare. <laughs> yeah, we did look at a couple of uh, couple of options there. Um, but, um, yeah, it, you know, it was uh, the sorts of money that you were putting out as a young, young, young family was not dissimilar to sending them, uh, once they hit uh, kindergarten age or grade one age, sending them off to uh, Cranbrook or indeed Melbourne Grammar or Scotch. Mm. So anyway, Labor's view is universal. This is a universal need in the, in, 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 the, uh, in the community. But when I look at this scale, I just look at this saying, okay, if you're on 400,000, total family income, you're getting more than a quarter of your childcare fees rebated by the government and you're on 450. Now, in the previous government, you got zero. Right? Now you're getting more than a quarter of your fees paid. I, I just don't understand that at all. I think the real problem is that childcare costs have gone up um, dramatically, 6.5% in the last 12 months alone. Mm. Um, and I sort of wonder whether that's because it's been rebranded as early childhood education rather than childcare. Whether whether we're making the thing um, too expensive? Yeah, look, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of developmental research, Jack, that, that indicates just how critical those years are, two to five, particularly in terms of language acquisition and and so forth. And and perhaps we should be spending a good deal of money on it. I'm not sure that um, if you're on if you're good enough or lucky enough to to be on four hundred larger year that you should be getting anything back from the government. Uh, but you will be because you've probably got a few investment properties and all that sort of stuff anyway. But this is just another form of uh, middle-class welfare for me. Look, we there's another topic that extends from this because after you go to childcare, you're going to wander into a school after that. And that uh, is the national curriculum, Jack. Uh, there's been some, um, uh, been some very uh, early criticism of a national curriculum. Uh, from school principals who are saying that this 750-page weighty, weighty document is unworkable and uh, impossible to teach. Well, I've read the lot. <laughs> Look, I, I dedicate myself to at least flipping through it. I will be reading most of it yeah. in terms of what's relevant per subject uh, before, for next week. But there is early consideration. These things are... 
veer into the political so easily. Um, firstly, it's a good thing we have a national curriculum, Jack, because for many, many years we didn't. And that meant that Queensland was a year behind in maths and, and it, we do need to have these sort of national standards. But let's let's agree... We're not, we're not doing Queensland jokes, are we? <laughs> we, 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 were, we were on that path, Jack. We were, we were headed down that way. Um, now, yes, just, can I just clarify? When I say I've read it, can I just check? There's no test on this, is there? <laughs> there's no test. You might have to. Uh, you might have to go. What are they called? The Austrian test? No, that's not it. Um, uh, uh, you might have to if you're in grade. I think grade four and grade. No, it's grade three, grade five, and then there's a there's a secondary compulsory test to determine your levels of literacy and numeracy, and the results aren't great. Um, you know, 50, 50 years ago, fifty years ago, no country had a national curriculum plan. Um, and now a lot of them do, um, and um, and I think it's if there's a good one that suits and it fits the country, that's really good. But a bad plan is worth is worse than having none at all. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that because you do have these sort of different standards um, being taught across the country, and you know. If you're ever in any doubt about that, ask a, ask a Queenslander who's, who's 30 years of age or older for some basic arithmetic. They're going to battle through it. Anyway, um, look, we are going to devote our time, not just to Julian Assange but to, uh, for next week, but we'll also look at the national curriculum. And I promise I've, uh, I'll have read it. Well, the important parts anyway. Uh, I, I I'll, I'll have time to revise it. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be, I will, I'd say be uh, doing a little bit of flipping and uh, as we wind up the show Jack to sport are my beloved Blues gone are they out of the race now they're currently sitting seventh they've got to play uh, they've got to play <laughs> the Lions in at the Gabba which is probably the toughest assignment in football then the then the D's at the G and then Collingwood at the G's uh, Collingwood at the G and they're all and all three sides are going better than them at the moment well, this, is they, the, this is the this is the real this is the real test for them. Is at the moment they've they've you know what are we round nineteen or something, and they've beaten two two real contenders. They've beaten um, the Swans in May, and they beat Fremantle a little bit more recently. Um, mm. uh, and now they get to find out whether they really are contenders themselves. If you're the coach, that's the way to approach it. That's exactly the way to approach it. They were very very poor against Adelaide, and a very well coached. Uh, Adelaide, by the way, they were extremely. They were very good. I, I got to say, yeah. I, I think uh, they would be absolutely delighted with the efforts of their new coach, uh, who's uh, who's really got them. I would think in a, in an in an elevated stage of development uh, because they are in a rebuild. Adelaide Crows. I mean, uh, they were you know. Uh, not uh, not far away from being um, uh, wooden spooners last year. Uh, it, no, no great uh, expectations around them this year, but they've just they've just proven themselves to be hard to beat. It's almost like a swans. Yeah, they're good. Uh, they're they're good competitors, and they've got some good young players, and they're going they in have. the right direction. The, to be to be fair with the Blues, where they finish up last year, about thirteenth or fourteenth. Yeah, thirteenth. Yeah, so um, with, with about eight wins. Yeah, so they've, yeah, they've, so they've definitely improved, but I, I think they, they are much, much better. The club looks much, much better. The crowds are back. Everything's going well. Just the real test over the next three weeks is: mm. is their best just quite good enough yet? And I suspect maybe it's not quite, but you know, but we'll find out. Oh, plenty of upside. Plenty of upside. But look, uh, if they do get rolled against Brisbane and then against Melbourne. 
a delicious prospect. They need to win one. Uh, yep. Delicious prospect of them beating the pies at, uh, at, at, at uh, in round 23 before the finals. That uh, really does appeal. And finally, Jack, the Commonwealth Games, why don't they just call me Australian Games, Jack? Because we're just absolutely cleaning up there, cleaning up in the pool, cleaning up on the uh, in the velodrome, cleaning up everywhere. Why don't they just call the Australian Games and then we, 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 there are some other people come along too? I keep forgetting the Commonwealth Games are on, you know. Oh, man, I watched um, it, I watched it uh, pretty much overnight on Friday night. Well, it wasn't, even the big, it wasn't anywhere near the biggest sporting story in the UK this morning. Um, no, uh, big, well, that's right. By far the, by far the biggest sporting story was the, the Lionesses, the England team, women's team, won the Women's European Championships uh, 2-1 after extra time. They beat the Germans. Um, and they won that in front of a crowd of 87,000 people, which is a record for any type of European football championships, men or women. Well, shades of the 1966 World Cup there, Jack. um, So uh, you just got to ask yourself whether this is a bit of a breakout moment for, for women's sport. Oh, women's women's soccer, I think, in the UK. I mean, they're, they're, that might be sound, sound a little bit patronising, but they are, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the Premier League have their women's clubs, um, and and that's well supported now too. But as with anything, uh, where the Brits beat, well, beat the Germans, um, <laughs> beat the Germans, beat anyone in Europe. Uh, there'll be uh, you'd be just you'd just be happy if you owned a bowl shop, wouldn't you? If you yeah, uh, well, it's good news for uh, for our Aussie Sam Sam Kerr because uh, she's a, a star in the uh, in yeah, the uh, well, in the women's Premier stop. League in the in the mm. UK, um, uh, and this is all going to tip more money into the into that. So you know. Well, you just get along. Her back manager will have a grin on his face. I know Hong Kong aren't aren't allowed to be uh, represented in the Commonwealth Games anymore, but you get along and watch the Commonwealth Games, mate, and you will feel, you know, just this surge of patriotic spirit. Uh, They are absolutely dominating at the moment. Um, Yes, so with that, we will leave you. Uh, Just before, just before we go, what else you got, Jack? I I just just, there's a little piece from from Jan Moyer in the Daily Mail. Um, oh, yeah. uh, you know, a lovely newspaper, The Daily Mail. Oh, it's uh, fucking awful, but go on. <laughs> uh, she, she, she writes a column in there. She says, the old joke about country music is that if you play a song backwards, you get your job back, your wife comes home, and your lover never leaves. Oh, I think it's supposed to be your dog returns too. Your dog returns. That's, that's how I understood it too. But she's talking about, well, now that we've, um, uh, we're moving into um, – uh, the rise of self-drive vehicles in America. A cowboy friend of hers wrote, it, wrote to her and said that surely it's only a matter of time before someone writes a country song about a guy's truck leaving him. Or <laughs> <laughs> indeed leaving the road. There have been one or two problems there with the self-drive cars, Jack. Yeah. Don't think they've notched up a fatality yet, but there have been a few bingles. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Look, it would be terrific if you just jumped in the, the passenger side and just sat there and uh, and basically the thing moved around robotically. I have seen it done. It, it just seems a little scary to me, but thanks for bringing that up. I, I, I call those a taxi. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah, but there is a physical human being sitting at the wheel. Yeah. That's the thing. There's, All right. there's, there's some elderly chap driving a, a red and white Toyota Crown Comfort, you know, um, uh, and I'm in the back seat. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> we'll keep that going. Well, thank you, Hong Kong Jack, and thank you to our listeners for another episode of Hard Hats and High Viz. And again, we uh, we encourage you to drop drop us a line, and we will read you on we will read you on air, uh, regardless of how rude you're going to be. And that's that's a nod to you, Lawrence. Uh, and uh, so drop us a line at uh, the conditional release program at gmail.com or get me on Twitter in my DMs there. You know how to get hold of me there. And thank you once again for listening. Good on you, Jack. We'll catch you next week, mate. Cheers.